the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Let me warn you in advance, you may hear thunder and lightning and lots and lots of rain. It is absolutely storming here, and it just started a little while ago. So we think we're going to be okay to be on the program, but thank you for tuning in and just bear with us. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, you need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. There's some thunder and lightning out there now. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, especially on a day like today, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's Tuesday and there's nothing going on that needs to I need to talk about. So let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. This first one is anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, hello, I have a question on Bible study with my spouse. How do you and Paula have Bible study together? Do y'all, this is somebody from Texas, do y'all do verse by verse and talk about it? Do y'all call each other out? My husband and I can't seem to get this right. I just want to read and dis- dissect the Bible together verse by verse. My husband has a completely different look on it. First, it was playing the entire chapter, and then he would tell me, uh, okay, what did you get? Uh, well, by then, he lost me in the first sentence of chapter one. Uh, my brain does not work like that, and he would make rude comments that completely turned me off to having Bible study again. Recently, I started praying about it and asked the Lord to help me open it up again because my fear was he was going to do something to put me down. We did it again, and we opened up the book of James and I and let me tell you, he was ready to dissect me more than the Bible. I shut down again. I've tried explaining to him I will get there one day where we can do that and open up. Right now, because of issues in our marriage, because of how he talks to me in previous Bible studies and how he goes about it, I've put a trust issue wall up with him. I'm praying my way out of it, and I want to be open with him, yet I'm scared because I know how he is. He will use my vulnerability against me in an argument. I've asked him to please let's just do it verse by verse together and start building something. He said, okay, then you lead. That's strange. Uh, That's my comment. Uh, She continues, I have no idea how to lead a Bible study, so please help me through this process. I don't understand why all this is so complicated. I just want to read and learn. Uh, I hope, Anonymous, that I can help you and encourage you a little bit. But one of the things that you've got to realize is that um, I know this doesn't make you feel particularly better, but I know hundreds of women, hundreds of women, who would give anything if their husbands would sit down and, and read the Bible together 
in any fashion or form. So be grateful that you have a husband who's willing to do that. The other thing you got to do, and Paula is always telling the ladies about this, um, you got to be vulnerable. Uh, I, I know we don't like being vulnerable. I know, especially if we've been hurt before, but but this is an opportunity for you to really let the Lord um, protect you, and and you can trust Him to do it. And do your best not to take things personal. Let me get to the the, the first question, and then I'll deal a little bit more in depth with this. Uh, Paula and I, we don't have Bible study together. She reads to me, and there are many times when we're led to have really great conversations, sometimes about the Word, something the Lord is is, is speaking to her heart. I know her so well, obviously, that, that when she is reading something, I can tell by her voice inflection. If there's something troubling her or if there's something that excites her or encourages her, um, and we can talk about those things. But she just reads me. Now, again, I'm visually impaired, so I, I can't read. So she does all of the reading. But it's not a Bible study. We're just reading together, trusting that the Holy Spirit of God is going to do um, the supernatural work of knitting our hearts together. So that's what Bible study is. Now, you individually, you and your husband each ought to be doing Bible study. But as a husband and a wife, just read it. Let the Word do what it does. And in order for that to, to work, you've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be in a place where you can say, um, you know what, Lord? Um, I'm going to trust you. You see, the issues in your marriage will be resolved by reading the Word, by letting the Holy Spirit work. So that's what you ought to do. The idea that you ask, do y'all call each other out? I don't know what that means, that you're, you're doing this or you're doing that. You see, whenever that's going on, and this is something you and your husband can talk about, um, whenever you're calling one another out, that's not the Holy Spirit working. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to you individually. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to your husband individually. And if you're using the Bible, either one of you, and you're using the Bible to sort of pound the other one or to say, well, see, I told you you shouldn't be doing this. This is like what happens in church, you know, when I'll be uh, teaching something and, you know, I can kind of see a husband or wife look at the other one and say, see, that's what the Lord wanted you to hear today. No, God speaks just to you. Your husband won't hear the Holy Spirit speak about you. Your husband won't. We'll let the Holy Spirit speak to him. And obviously the same thing is true when you're reading the Bible or hearing the Bible. Remember, the purpose of reading the word together is to knit your hearts together. And it is a supernatural consequence, a wonderful consequence, but supernatural consequence of the word and the spirit working together to knit your hearts together. But in order to do that, you've got to be, both of you, you've got to be open to what the Spirit is saying to each and every one of you. And great conversations, uh, questions, but it's not, you know, a, a test. It's not, uh, well, what is, what is the Lord saying to you? Um, it, it's just letting the Word do the work. So that's how you do it. And so my suggestion is, um, and let me, give you, let me give you the book even, um, Anonymous. Uh, start in the book of Ephesians. And you read a chapter to him out loud. And then give him the Bible and tell him to read to you that same chapter out loud. And then at the end of it, if there's something to talk about, and because of the, the, the animosity that I'm sensing in this letter, uh, it may be a little awkward at first, but that's okay. That's okay. This is where faith will do its work. But just read it together. Now, if a chapter is too big a bite, and sometimes it is. The Bibles, your, your Bible will break up things into sections. So just read a section. You read it out loud. Let him read it out loud. You read it out loud again. If it's a smaller section, let him read it out loud. And let the Holy Spirit have his way in your hearts. Just remember and tell him the same thing. The Holy Spirit is only going to speak to you individually or to him individually. He's not going to speak to you about him, nor is he going to speak to him about you. That's really, really important. Now, as for you taking the lead, just refuse to do that. Just say, you know what? I'm not going to do that because the Bible says that you're the spiritual head of the household. 
And can I ask, say, make one other suggestion? I hope this isn't too personal. But you and your husband need to repent before the Lord. Doesn't sound like you like him. Doesn't sound like he likes you. Remember, you're one flesh. There's no individual grace. Peter calls husbands and wives joint heirs of the grace of life together. And going in this kind of direction and and misusing the Bible to do it it is going to eliminate that daily grace from your lives. You've got to deal with the relationship issues in your own marriage. And if he's willing to study the Bible, if he's willing to read it to you and you to him, Well, that's a wonderful place to start, and the solutions will be there. But it's not a Bible study. You do the Bible study on your own. But this is just husbands and wives reading together. And if there are children in the picture, then the same thing has to happen with them. It's a different study, uh, and it's not you preaching or your husband preaching to the kids. It's just exposing them to the word and letting the, 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 the family have open conversations about what they've heard. One other thing that you said, you said, my brain doesn't work like that. And he would make rude comments and completely turn me off to having a Bible study. Your brain will be retrained. Don't worry about what you want or how you want it. Remember, you lose your life, you find it. You lose your life for Jesus, and you find it. So here's the situation. Let your brain be changed by a willing spirit, a charitable heart, and then the work of being in the Word together with your husband. Don't find yourself at odds and make this a bone of contention. You also said that you're going to pray about it. You started praying about uh, about asking the Lord to help me open it up again. Um, you don't have to pray about that. Just do it. It really is. You're not your own. You're bought with the price. God will be there, and he will protect you. Thank you for the email, and I'll be praying for you. 340-9585. Here is a question from Charles. Pastor, on a social justice, a good approach to what churches should be emphasizing. Charles, let me say this. There's no such thing as social justice. That's just sort of a catchphrase from progressives. Justice is justice. It doesn't need an adjective. Justice is justice, period. And the Bible's full of justice. So churches ought to be teaching the Bible. The idea that we've got to go out and and start a social justice campaign to make wrongs right, we don't have the power to do that. We simply don't have the power to do that. So what we do as a church, not, not just Calvary Chapel, but what every church ought to be doing, is simply teaching their people the Bible and letting the Bible change them. And the Bible will give different churches different visions, different directions, It's really important. We understand that God is knitting things together and he's really not concerned at all about our agenda. And if you open the word of God and if you study it, and by that I mean you're being taught the Bible accurately. And I will say also that that churches that are focusing on social justice are not teaching the Bible. And when they're referring to the Bible, they're misusing the Bible. So what you do is you just let the Bible be taught. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. And I have to use Calvary Chapel of San Antonio because that's really all I know about for sure. We do a lot of things that progressives would be really thrilled about. We have free medical care um, here for anybody that that needs it. Uh, We have a family practice doctor's office. Uh, It's absolutely free. We don't take any insurance. We don't do anything. It's just completely 100% free, 100% supported by the ministry here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, It is staffed by people from our church and only people from our church. Um, We take everybody. It's not a thing where it's just for believers or people in our church. In fact, 90% of the people that come to uh, Malta Medical is the name of our our practice um, are, are unbelievers. And we have a lot of people coming from the gay community, from the transgender uh, people. We, we have a lot of people coming in. They don't want to hear anything about Jesus, but everybody hears about Jesus and everybody gets prayed for. 
And if they don't want to do that, well, we just let them know. Well, that's our charge. You know, it's a free doctor's office. If you can go find a doctor's office that's for free, you can go to another one. But if you're going to come here, we're going to pray for you, and you're going to hear about Jesus. And the result is people get saved. Now, when I said that progressives would love that, it's because we're providing free of charge for the people who really need it. Now, Charles, we didn't do that. God gave us that vision. And God brought the people to do it. And God provides the, the finances to do it. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that progressives would call social justice. But again, we got that by, by teaching the word, by letting the word of God and the spirit of God work together to speak to people's hearts and we're able to do stuff. We have a free school, same kind of a thing. So um, if you allow God to give you a vision, to give your church a vision, and I think we pastors need to remember that the church is not ours the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. We are men under orders. And if we'll understand that and we'll just say, okay, Lord, thy will be done, then what will happen is God will take care of all of these things that these progressive Christians or so-called Christians and progressive churches um, uh, want to see done. But whenever we try to do things in the flesh, there's nothing but disaster. So let me say one more time. There's no such thing as social justice. All justice is social. All justice is civil. And justice, as I said, needs no adjective whatsoever. Social justice is sort of a, a bogus boogeyman. Um, what we need to do is do what God tells us to do. And that way Jesus really is running the church. And then he will use a church that's willing to submit to his plan. He'll use that church to change the lives of people whose lives really need to be changed. Good question, Charles. Thank you very, very much. Um, here's a question for Samantha. Samantha, I like your question. Um, Samantha says, Pastor, will you talk about Jacob and Jesus wrestling? What is the significance of that? Um, Samantha, this to me personally now, everybody who has listened to me preach or comes to Calvary Chapel knows exactly what I'm going to say. This to me is one of the most personal and enduring passages of Scripture um, in my life from the very beginning of my walk with the Lord. And I think this is because I started reading the Bible. When I opened the first time, I did what most people do well I started at the beginning. When I got to Genesis 32, and uh, Jacob was holding on to Jesus, and he said, I will not let go until you bless me. Um, Samantha, that passage of Scripture and the way the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that time changed my life. And in fact, to this very day, now I've been saved 32 years, to this very day, this is something that I say every single day. Jesus today, of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, in your name, and for your glory. And then I offer my hand to the Lord figuratively. I mean, he's there, but not physically. I say, Jesus, I offer my hand by faith. I take your hand in faith, and I will not let go until you bless me. And then I hold my left hand out. That's the one I hold out to Paula. And she's almost always not there. Once in a while when we're walking together, we can do it. But I say, um, Lord, I take Paula's hand. We're one flesh, and we will not let go until you bless us. And so the idea there is we're holding on to Jesus, and that's exactly what Jacob was doing in that wrestling match. You know, the wrestling match started, Samantha, uh, with Jacob trying to get away from God. So God was the initiator of the match. Jesus was the one who was saying uh, to Jacob, uh, my, my paraphrase, uh, you've been trying to run away from me and it hasn't worked out for you, so now I'm going to hold on to you. And all night long, you can, you can see Jesus holding on to Jacob and Jacob's trying to squirm away. And finally, Jesus touched his hip, crippled him. He walked with a limp the rest of his life. And Jacob realized the power that he was trying to run from. And Jesus let him go, and that's when Jacob held on to him. That's when Jacob grabbed him. 
And he held on and said, I will not let go until you bless me. It's funny because it's like a lot of our lives. You know, when God wants to do something with us, we're trying to run away the other direction. But but finally, when we realize uh, what we're trying to run from, we're the ones who are holding on. So, Samantha, that's why that passage is so significant. Jesus wrestled Jacob. And Jacob won the wrestling match by surrendering. That's the significance of that Genesis 32 passage. It is so personal, so important in my walk with the Lord for all of these years. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and or questions. Toll free 877-630-KSLR. Anthony says, my church wants to spend a bunch of money on special effects for worship. I'm upset about this. What do you think? Um, Anthony, it's, it's your church's decision. Now, I'm not a fan of special effects, light shows, uh, fog, um, you know, crazy things. Uh, I'm not a fan. I would never do that in our church. We don't even turn down the lights um, to, to try to create a worshipful environment. That's sort of all um, counterfeit. Um, um, so I, I think what I would do if I were you, I would have a sit down, a very cordial, respectful sit down with uh, the pastor of the church and ask him um, to share with you what his motives are. Why does he want to do it? Why does he think that's good stewardship? Very nicely and respectfully let him know um, that you're upset about it but that you're going to be reasonable about it if he would just share his heart. And and who knows what his heart is. I, I You know, churches want a good worship experience. I think sometimes we forget that the worship comes from our hearts and not from the things that we do on the stage. But give him an opportunity to explain to you his heart, and, and then after that you can make a decision uh, regarding whether or not it's a church that you feel comfortable remaining in. Uh, it's certainly not something that you should be sharing with other people. There's no point in trying to cause division or trying to win people to your side. Um, but but what I would sit down and just give him the opportunity to explain his heart. Why are you doing it? What's your motive? And if his motive is, well, you know, we just want a really cool uh, worship experience, um, then I think that's probably a time when you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to make a decision to um, to um, leave the church or find someplace else. So, um, Anthony, that's the best I can do without knowing uh, any more details. But certainly the way Christians deal with these things, um, spirit-filled Christians, uh, we sit down amicably and respectfully and we uh, share our hearts. And he will give you his reasons, and then you can make a decision about what you're going to do. But remember, it's not your church. It's Jesus' church. Um, if it was your pastor calling or writing in this question, I would say the same thing. It's not your church. And I tell our church here all the time that motive is everything. And everything we do and all the money that we spend ought to bring honor and glory to the Lord. I understand uh, the thinking of churches that want these cool worship experiences. They think that uh, a rock and worship band will bring people in. Um, the one thing we got to remember, though, is it's the Holy Spirit who leads his people in to the church. Again, for me personally, I would never spend any money on that. Um, you know, we're, we're dying for a stage big enough to do all the things that we want to do on it. But uh, that's just people and equipment. It's not... not that kind of special effects stuff. Ricardo says, should Christians get counsel from a lot of people? Uh, Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors or just the pastor or staff. My pastor tells me to stop asking for people's opinions. Ricardo, I agree with your pastor 100% and, and I don't know his heart or why he's saying it, but we don't need anybody's opinion. Uh, there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but that's only if the counselors are wise. You know, people's opinions are not wise. People's opinions have no validity 
whatsoever. They should have no impact on our lives. What people's opinions, when they disagree with the word of God, they should be completely disregarded. And a lot of times when we're asking a lot of people about a certain issue or question we have, what we're really looking for is somebody who will agree with what we want to do. And say, see, I got counsel. This guy said this. Well, your pastor's trying to keep you in the word. And a pastor on staff, I hope, would lead you to the word of God. But but to get people's opinions, Ricardo, is going to be really, really troublesome for you. So just don't worry about opinions. Open your Bible. The first opinion, the only opinion you ought to be concerned about is that of the Lord. So pray about these issues. Open the Bible. Let the Spirit of God speak to you. And when he speaks to you, then you will have the conviction of the Holy Spirit about what you're going to do or what you're not going to do. And then you won't be easily swayed by others. So, Ricardo, get your counsel. And the the church staff, the pastor... They're going to lead you to the Lord. At least that's what they ought to be doing. And other people giving their opinions probably will not. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show. 340-9585. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. It's Tuesday. It is wet and it is rainy. Please be careful out there. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Nacho from our email inbox. I'm going to really have to edit this because it's very long, and and so I'm going to be picking out some of the things here. Uh, Nacho says, um, Pastor Ron, in your sermon on Sunday, you mentioned that you don't really know why centurions are mentioned prominently in the New Testament. Uh, if you will indulge this old military guy, I wanted to give you my thoughts. Roman centurions were the backbone of the Roman army, just like the NCOs are in the U.S. military today. With that in mind, take into consideration that to be a centurion, you had to be at least 30 years old, had to have served in the army for many years, working through the ranks as one of the most brutal armies the world has ever known. To be a centurion, you had to be devout and faithful to his generals and to the Roman way of life. They commanded hundreds of men, if not thousands. They were hard-hearted to everything not Roman and sometimes dismissive even towards anyone who wasn't a Roman legionary. So when we see them in the Bible, our intimidation is expected. Yet what we find in them as they interacted with the Lord or the disciples, we find a drastic contrast to what we would expect a centurion to be. Now, let me... Uh, give you a little bit of background. Um, um, we were talking about um, Cornelius, um, who was a centurion um, in, in in one of the most important regions, the Italian regiment, which would basically be the, the counterpart to our secret service. They were responsible, solely responsible for the safety of the of the, the Roman governor in the province where they were assigned. Uh, and in this particular case, that was important because this Roman governor in Caesarea, that was a vacation home sort of on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, this Roman governor was responsible for Jerusalem, and it was a, a, a very, very tough thing. Now, what I said was um, not that I didn't know why they were mentioned, prominently mentioned in the New Testament. They're mentioned prominently because they're part of the story. But what I said was, it's interesting to me, and I don't know that there's a reason that I can pinpoint, but that the centurions that are um, front and center in the New Testament uh, are are usually mentioned in a favorable light. Whether it was the centurion at the cross, surely this was the Son of God. You all know that was John Wayne, by the way. And, and uh, Cornelius uh, and others, the centurion whose daughter, Jairus, uh, and others whose whose daughter was raised from the dead, those kind of things. So uh, they're mentioned prominently. Now, here's why I think they were mentioned prominently, because these are men who 
understood authority. And Nacho, you mentioned that um, um, they were they were focused, laser focus on 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 being faithful to Rome, being faithful to the chain of command, and doing their job. Um, but here's the thing: the ones we see in the New Testament, whether it's Cornelius or the others, the centurion whose daughter was raised from the dead, um, we 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 see them. Um, because they understand authority. In one case, um, Jesus said to a centurion, that he, Jesus said, I'll come with you. And the centurion said, no, no, you have to come with me. I'm a man under authority. In other words, what he was saying is, I recognize authority and you have authority. And Jesus looked at his disciples at that point, And I think in a rebuke, when he looked at his disciples, he says, look, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. And when he was looking at his disciples, basically what he was saying was that this is a Gentile and you have been walking with me, you don't have this kind of faith? And what he was telling him, you listen to this, he understands what his role is, he understands authority. And one of the keys, Nacho, and and I think this is a, a word for everybody out there, unless you understand being under authority, you're not walking in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And and that's just my opinion, why I think the centurions are shown in a favorable light. It's because they understood authority. And one of the problems I think we all have, whether it's a wife submitting to the husband, um, or the husband uh, or the wife submitting to a boss at work, um, those of us um, submitting to our government authorities when we don't agree with them, uh, and even spiritually, uh, Romans 13, submitting to our spiritual leaders, we don't like to submit. And Jesus simply says it takes great faith to submit to authority. And only when we learn to submit to authority will we ever be given a position of authority by the Lord. That's really an important thing to remember. So I personally think that's the focus or, or why the centurions would be seen in a favorable light. Certainly, there's nothing favorable about centurions just because they were centurions other than they were really, really tough people, and they'd seen horrible things. I mean, you talk about battle-tested and battle-hardened men. Uh, that was a brutal world. We can't even begin to imagine the brutality that, that those men had seen. And yet... Um, there are some that are singled out and shown in a favorable light. And I think it's because they get it. I think the, the, the short of all of this, Nacho, is if you really want to be used by the Lord, you've got to recognize true authority in your life. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Jamie. Um, Jamie says, who exactly will hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you? I thought once saved, always saved. Jamie, there's a lot of people who think they're Christians who aren't. Frankly, they're not born-again Christians. Um, you know, they want a, an eternal life insurance policy. I don't want to go to hell so um, uh, and, and be tormented forever. So, uh, yes, I, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I got baptized. I answered an altar call. But they've never walked with Jesus or for Jesus at all. You know, they come to church, they're, they're good people, relatively speaking, but they've never really surrendered. And you have no right to call Jesus Lord until you've surrendered to him. Lord means he's the boss of you. And if he's the boss of you, he speaks, you say yes. We don't get the chance to say no. One of the things that I emphasized in last Sunday's Bible study in Acts 10 was, you know, uh, you can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. You just can't do it. And uh, Jamie, the people Jesus was talking to were the religious leaders. Um, they thought they were, we, we, I'm going to use a New Testament term, they thought they were saved by virtue of being descendants of Abraham, by virtue of having the law, by being God's chosen people. And there are many, many Jews, in fact, most Jews, who still that believe that very thing to this day. Nope, we're God's chosen people. I don't need to be saved. I'm going to heaven. But Jesus will say, depart from me. They, he, he said in, in uh, precision, he said, uh, or rather to be precise, 
He said, many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord. And I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, the question regarding salvation, Jamie, is does he know you? Everybody knows about Jesus. But to know him, we have to be known by him. And unfortunately, there is a lot of people who think they're going to heaven, who've never really bowed a knee in their, in their heart, figuratively. They've never really bowed a knee to Jesus Christ and said, okay, from this point forward, you're in charge. And that's important. Jamie, everybody who really is born again, once saved, always saved. But there's just a lot of people that aren't born again who think, who hope they are. If you if you push some of those people in a corner and say, okay, are you, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? Most of those people will, will confess to you, well, I hope so. I'm trying to do good things. I'm trying to be good. But those of us who have depended on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have no doubt that we're going to be going to heaven. So the people who are going to hear Jesus say that are those, I call them pretenders, people who claim Jesus but don't really know him nor are they known by him. Good question. Patrick says, I've heard you say that we're not to violate our conscience. Patrick, I've said that. It's Romans 14, 23. Anything not of faith is sin. And then he says, but how do we know if we're being convicted by the Holy Spirit or just our conscience? Well, Patrick, if the Spirit of God is in you um, and you're doing stuff that you know you ought not to do, that's being convicted. That's really important to understand. You have a Bible, Patrick, that tells you what you're supposed to do and the things that you're not supposed to do. So we don't have to guess if if you're having sex with somebody you're not married to. Uh, the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are sins committed outside his body, but sexual immorality is a sin we commit against our own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're getting drunk, if you're using foul language, uh, the Bible tells us those things are not good. So you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit. I've had people tell me, Patrick, that something they were doing, um, they've justified so often in their own mind. And though the Bible clearly says it's sin, they say, well, my conscience isn't bothering me at all. Well, that ought to terrify them because that says a lot about just how hard their hearts have become. So when I say we're not to violate our conscience, it's in, in matters of conscience. You know, the, the Christian who says, well, um, I know God wants me to stop smoking. Now, smoking is not a sin. Let me get that out of the way. But the Christian that says, I know God wants me to smoke, uh, quit smoking, um, but they don't do it, um, their conscience is trying to tell them this is a word from the Lord. And that then becomes sin, not not smoking so much as being disobedient to the voice of God. And if God wants you, and I'm just going to use this example, if God wants you to quit smoking, it's because he wants more ministry for you. He doesn't want you to be miserable. He's not trying to, to limit your ministry. He's trying to expand your ministry. And the way we do it is we make decisions. Is my love for Jesus more important than, and being used by Jesus more important than satisfying my flesh and the desire I have to smoke a cigarette? And you could do that with um, marijuana. You could do that with um, anger. I mean, they're just, just all of the things that we know are sinful things, we rationalize them. And again, I've had people say it doesn't bother my conscience, so it must be okay. No, it's not okay when the Bible says something. So, Patrick, the way you know for sure is to know your Bible, to walk with Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit have his way in your life. One other comment, and I say this every time I get a question about being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Conviction of the Holy Spirit draws us close to God. Paula, bless her heart, she's the only person I've ever known that says this. She goes, I love conviction. And the reason she can say that is because she wants to be right and stay right with the Lord. So conviction is is her way of knowing that God loves her and wants more for her. So conviction of the Holy Spirit draws you to the Lord. Condemnation, on the other hand, comes from the devil. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. The condemnation draws you away from the Lord. So that's how you can discern the difference between conviction and condemnation. But conscience is determined what's right or wrong and your conscience's view of right or wrong is determined by the word, not by what you think. I wish I could, and I can't go into detail, but I wish I could just spend a little time and talk about all of the horrible, sinful things that people have told me that their conscience doesn't bother them about at all. And it's a scary, scary thing to sit in a room with somebody like that because my job as a pastor then is to tell them that they're in danger of crossing a line where their heart is so hard that they can no longer respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Patrick, that's a really dangerous place to go. So I hope I answered your question, Patrick. Here's a question from Alan. Alan says, why does God create people he knows will not believe in him? Alan, this is important to understand. God doesn't create anybody anymore. God created Adam and God created Eve by his own hand, uh, the finger of God. Uh, He's the one that breathed life into them. And, and they became living beings. But from that moment on, every person who has been created, every person that's ever been born, was created through the process. Be fruitful and multiply. So it's not like God is involved directly with creating people anymore. Um, you know, David says, I was knit, you, you know, you knew me when I was in my mother's womb. I was knit together in the mother's womb. That's the process that God created. So why would God allow people to be born that he knows will not believe in him? It's simple because God would never, ever consider aborting or killing children. It's that simple. Now, the other thing is that people who are not believers, they are entitled to live as full a life as possible. And God has blessed a bunch of them. Think think about the people that we idolize in our world, um, um, athletes, movie stars, rock stars. Just think about that for a moment, Alan. And, And we elevate them, and they live these fabulously wealthy lives, and they're famous. Um they have a chance to enjoy their life. It's all the enjoyment they're going to get because in eternity, they're certainly not going to enjoy anything. So God allows them to live and in the process of their lives, he'll reveal himself to them and they can have a choice whether or not they're going to serve him or not. But God gives everybody that opportunity. He doesn't show any partiality toward anybody. And I can tell you this, the people that are the most blessed by God in these worldly ways are also way more accountable to God with what they do with that blessing. Tiger Woods, I used to to pray for Tiger Woods every day. Uh, Now I only do occasionally, but, but, um, you know, we've, we've never seen a golfer like Tiger Woods. Nobody's ever been that dominating, and God gave him that, that ability so he's accountable to God for what he does with it. And unfortunately, he's just sort of thumbed his nose at God with his life. And that's why we can keep praying for him. But Tiger, by all accounts, has lived a very privileged life. And still he's not happy because he's missing Jesus Christ. That's just one example I could give of many. Thank you, Alan, for the question. God does not kill anybody that's important. Lennon on line one from San Antonio. Lennon, good to hear from you. You are on the air. Hello, Pastor Rana. <clears throat> I just wanted to make a quick comment on Sunday's message. It really uh, touched my heart. Um, it really, uh, it was very, very touching. Me being an immigrant and, you know, experiencing some of the things that immigrants experience, I have yet to hear someone said what you said that we have to love foreigners and and I guess sometimes the the American church is so focused on on itself 
that we're not able to see the need out there for the people that are coming. And, of course, me being one of them at a certain period of my life is just uh, so loving, you know, and I have, I just could not contain myself on Sunday because it's truly what, you know, we want to hear, and it's truly what, what as Christians we should be concerned about, not, not you know, not being so nationalist. And, you know, some I get, I get like a picture into my head, but I don't know what some people think, that we're going to be ex- excluded in heaven or design areas by colors and ethnicities, you know, and, and I'm so glad that God doesn't see us that way. We're yeah. all his children, and it was just a, a tremendous message. So I just wanted to thank you. Thank you, Lynn, and God bless you. I appreciate you saying that. You know, um, for the audience out there, you know, there's, uh, believe it or not, there are tens of thousands, millions of people that don't listen to my messages. But for the people in this audience, um, um, I talked about the situation, the the human tragedy unfolding at the border. The interesting thing for me, uh, 28 years is the first time this ever happened. Um, In preparing that study and getting ready for that study, Um, it never occurred to me to make that application. It never occurred to me to talk about the border situation. We do not deal with politics here. Uh, I'll explain why in a moment. But we deal with the things of the kingdom of God. And uh, unfortunately, um, too much of the church, um, their, their, their sort of spiritual view is shaped by politics. Um, too many Christians. I mean, typically we're conservative uh, politically, we're conservative socially, and too many Christians are getting their theology from Fox News, and they're getting angry, and they're they're, they're not showing the fruit of the Spirit. And we've got a human tragedy unfolding at the Texas border. I'm sure the same thing is happening in Arizona and parts of California. Uh, We've got a human tragedy unfolding, and and people are going to die. People are being sold into slavery. Um, the, the overwhelming majority of the people that are coming uh, from um, uh, to our southern borders are coming um, because they want a better life for their families. Um, they want to escape the, the murderous environment of the drug cartels. Um, and I told the church, I'm angry about these things. It was in, in the middle of the first service um, when the Lord started speaking in my heart about this is where this is going. And so I was completely caught off guard. And um, I wanted everybody to be sure that they understand this isn't a political statement. This is a statement about the love of God and our responsibility. We don't make national policy. Um, I made the comment that Washington, D.C. has never once called me and asked me what I thought they ought to do. Um, Our job is to love whoever it is that's in front of us. And because in San Antonio, we're going to get hundreds, if not thousands, of these um, um, immigrants coming into the country. We need to recognize that they're lost, they're hurting, they're hungry, they're broken, uh, they're needy. And our job is to minister the love of Christ to whoever is in front of us. And Jesus isn't asking for work visas or green cards. He's not asking for citizenship papers. He's just simply saying, love the people that I bring to you. And we've got to do that. And if we fail, what we've done is we fail to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives toward the very people that Jesus' heart is reaching out to. Now, I'm a politically and socially conservative guy. I want there to be border laws, and I want those laws to be enforced. But we have to deal with the reality. We can't deal with whatever the, the, the ideal may be. And the reality is, is that our government... Our government has made a mess of things. So we either have laws and we enforce them, or we don't have laws. And there's a middle road, and we don't have to have... I can have an opinion about immigration policy and border policies. I don't think we should have open borders. But at the same time, when the borders are being breached the way they are now, to have Christians talk about we're being invaded, to have Christians getting angry at people that God loves... Uh, because they're listening to Fox News, I think breaks the Lord's heart. So our job 
is simply to deal with the people that we have in love without prejudice. Without prejudice. And this whole nationalistic approach, anybody who's suffering from that is serving the wrong kingdom. This is an opportunity. We have to have the mission field brought to us instead of us having to go out in the mission field. We've planted four churches in, in Mexico. And we did that because God loves the people there. I'm angry because those people are being abused. They're being enslaved. They're being murdered. But I'm also angry because our government refuses to do anything about the drug cartels that people here, young people here, not just young people anymore, but, but people are dying every day in unprecedented numbers from fentanyl coming across this border. And all we've got is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And that's the message that we have to communicate. That is our job. It's not to be a Republican. It's not to be a Democrat. Our job is to represent Jesus. We are his ambassadors. Lennon, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that. Thank you for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm looking forward to being here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Lord willing, I'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.